To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up under or bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So reads the word of God. I want to begin our study this morning by clarifying one matter from last week that I think will be helpful as an on-ramp into this week's text. We were talking last week about the vision of Jesus and the sword that, uh, that pr protruded from his mouth, and I emphasize strongly that this shouldn't be understood as a literal sword, but as an image of God's Word. But but that answer doesn't answer all of our questions about the sword or about how to handle the images of this book, does it? So it's helpful just to spend an extra moment on that as we get started this morning, just to clarify it a bit and to give us a boost into Revelation today. Why would I want to emphasize so strongly that we shouldn't see this as a literal sword Surely we understand that one of the chief battles in the interpretation of the book of Revelation is how to receive it. Is it literal? Is it figurative? As though it's an either-or and there couldn't possibly be a combination of the two. Well, my friends, there's a combination of the two and of several other approaches that we will become acquainted with as we move through this letter. But the answer to the question of why I would put it so strongly that we shouldn't see this as a literal sword is most simply put just by saying it's part of a vision. It's part of a vision. John was in the Spirit, he reported in chapter 1, verse 10, in the Spirit on the Lord's day. So he's having a prophetic vision, and images in a prophetic vision point to literal truth. So it's literally true, but is it literally a sword? That's a good question. So images in a prophetic vision point to literal truth, but they come to the prophet as dreamlike images. We've seen that throughout the scriptures. Combination of, of things that are often impossible in the real world, just like our own dreams. And yet... They are helpful in seeing very important truths that God wants the prophet both to see and to communicate. The image itself here in chapter 1, verses 12 through 16, of the resurrected Christ as we recognized him wasn't just of Jesus in his resurrection body. I don't think John is saying this is what Jesus looks like as he sits on the throne in heaven embodied still but in the presence of God and seated, as it were, at his right hand, I don't think if we just saw an image of Jesus in his resurrected body that this is what it would look like. Actually, this is a combination of different images that are put together from Daniel chapter 7 primarily. 
It's a combination of Daniel's vision of the Ancient of Days with the Son of Man who was presented before the Ancient of Days in that passage. And images of both or descriptions of both are put together in what John is seeing here to convey an understanding of the resurrected Christ in his role with the church and what he's intending to accomplish in the church. And what we see, and we'll point it out in a moment as we get into today's text, is that elements from this very vision are being drawn upon as the introduction to each of the seven letters that follows. So Jesus is being seen according to certain Old Testament images and a combination of those images that set up his authority to speak to the church and it'll be drawn upon as he does so in chapters 2 and 3. So the sword is a dreamlike image meant to convey an apocalyptic symbolism the fact that the Word of God is coming from the mouth of Jesus. Or better, that Jesus, being God, speaks the very Word of God. So taking this as a literal sword, such that we would discuss the physical properties of the sword, its double edge, its length, its color, perhaps, or how it is that Jesus could speak with a voice like a trumpet when he has a sword in his mouth, all of that goes the wrong direction. But having said that, we still do need to add and to affirm that when John turned to see the voice behind him that was speaking like a trumpet, the vision of the resurrected Christ, that what he saw did include a sword coming out of his mouth. This image is how the meaning was communicated. And that's helpful in beginning to read Revelation. Literal meaning, the word of God coming from the mouth of the risen Christ but given in figurative imagery so that as we move through different parts of this writing, that imagery with which we have been schooled in the early days with images we can see and understand can help us with images that we can see but can't really understand, setting us up well to read the rest of the book. Is that clearer in terms of how to understand the image? When John turned and looked, he saw a sword. But to talk about that as being a literal sword is to miss the point of this text and how this text is used in the very two chapters that follow. Now let's begin to look at chapter 2. Let's begin with a bit of background. Again, we're going to have a longer introduction this morning, so I'll let you know when we get to the outline that's actually presented there in your bulletin. But I want to give some introductory material now first to really chapters 2 and 3. There are a number of similarities among the the seven letters that we're going to read over the next seven Sundays. In fact, each is structured according to the same general outline with seven points of similarity. I'm not going to list them all right now. Instead, I, I plan to mention different ones as they arise and fit well within the exposition of different letters or on different Sundays. I want to let you know, though, that we will be using the same outline all seven Sundays. The outline you see in your bulletin will be there, God willing, for the next seven weeks with just different verses attached to it. Those of you who were here back in 2009, November and December, right on the heels of our 25th anniversary celebration as a church, we went through a series on the seven churches. And I used these outlines back, this same outline back then, Some people jot the outlines in their Bible. If you see that, you're going to see the same outline as you saw 13 years ago, all right? But it's a different sermon. These are different days. We're looking at different things. So the text still says the same thing, but this is a good way to get an exercise in recognizing that the Word of God, unchanging, eternally true as it is, speaks differently to us at different times. Different parts of it come to the fore in our minds and hearts. And so uh, be prepared for that as we move through these letters together. This morning, I just want to draw your attention first to verse 1 here. Again, we're not in our outline section yet. We're still in introduction. But verse 1 kind of stands apart as it introduces this letter. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, 
The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Here are the first two similarities, by the way, of the seven, among the seven letters. First, each letter is addressed to the angel of the given church. We'll talk about that a, a bit in just a moment and much more in weeks ahead. And second, each is explicitly from the glorified Jesus, identified by referring to some part of the description from John's vision back in chapter 1. Each of the letters begins with those two things. It's to the angel, and it's drawing on something from John's vision of Jesus to begin what he has to say to each particular church. Usually the reference will have something to do with the message that that church will hear from Jesus. With Ephesus here, I believe authority and omniscience are in the foreground. I believe that's what we see from this description of Jesus as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. What we're seeing is images of his authority and his omniscience. To some extent, authority will be emphasized in each of the seven letters. But here, these words, to him who holds the seven stars, or the words of him who holds the seven stars... There's some in commentary who think this really is drawing on the Old Testament use of statements like, thus says the Lord God. This is Jesus who's got the angels to the churches in his hands. He's got authority over this group and over the churches they represent. And it's him who's speaking that seems to be equivalent to that Old Testament formula Thus says the Lord God, or something similar. Sixty-five times that appears in Ezekiel's prophecy. Thirty or so times in Jeremiah. Twelve times in Zechariah. Eight times in Amos, and so on. Jesus is identifying himself with Yahweh, speaking prophetic words to the people of God, speaking prophetic words to the churches. His authority is also re-emphasized here, I think, when he's identified as him who holds the stars in his right hand. The right hand is the hand of power we mentioned last week in Apocalyptic. The angels of the seven churches are in his hand. As I said a moment ago, we'll say more about these angels in coming weeks. But here, we'll at least note that they are identified with the churches to the extent that addressing the angel is addressing the church. Addressing each angel is addressing each church, and Jesus does have authority over both. So there's his authority. How about his omniscience? We see his omniscience here as Jesus is positioned among the lampstands. John initially reports him being in the midst of the lampstands back in chapter 1, verse 13, as part of that vision. He's there, he's at hand, first-hand observation, we might say. He's right there in the midst of the lampstands. So he can rightly say, as he does here in verse 2, I know your works. But the image of him among the lampstands is, is, is advanced here in chapter 2 as John makes reference to it. Jesus reports, or John reports that Jesus walks among the lampstands here. That doesn't necessarily mean his action has changed. Again, remember, we're looking at apocalyptic literature doesn't necessarily mean his action has changed, but our knowledge of what he's doing advances here in chapter 2 over what we saw in chapter 1. You note those kind of details as you move through Revelation. This tells us that he's not at all out of touch with anything his church is facing. His church, meaning theirs back in the first century or ours, that's that's the picture we get of Jesus being among the lampstands. He sees it all. He knows all. Picture a teacher walking around the room, observing while his students are working on some assignment or are taking a test. He's in complete control of what's going on 
in that classroom knowing all that's happening there. His walking among them is enabling him to see what's going on as these things are being done. Jesus is present among his churches in this way. Most evidently, he's among his churches, even in these letters, by his spirit. You see that in verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. So it's a letter from Jesus, but as it closes, he wants you to hear the spirit's voice through the message that he's given. And by the way, this is the sixth of the seven similarities. It's the third one that we're hitting this morning, but it's number six among the seven is that each church is told, listen to what the Spirit is saying to you through these words that I'm speaking. We'll drill into that a bit more as we go through these seven churches. So when Jesus speaks here, he's not just identifying himself with Yahweh and the, a sort of thus saith the Lord kind of introduction, he's also identifying the Spirit with himself. So what we have here then is perfect. We have, we have a word from the entire Trinity, essentially, in a captivatingly rich scenario telling us not just, tell, telling not just one church, but telling all of the churches, all seven back then, and illustrated by this special apocalyptic number of completeness, this number seven, he's speaking to all churches right up through the centuries to this very day. Exactly what we need to be focusing on, exactly what we need to be pursuing, what we need to know as the days grow increasingly evil. When we read Revelation 2 and 3, we understand it in its context as a letter to the seven churches, but we also hear it as God's word to us, just like we do with Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians. We receive our instruction through those letters. I think it's no accident then that there are seven churches. It's the complete church that's being addressed. And we need this in increasingly evil days, don't we? We need the reminder of what the church is supposed to be, how the church is supposed to respond when we, when we are seeing the evil that this book talks about cycling up through history. Like birth pangs, that's how Jesus talked about it in Matthew 24, increasing in intensity and frequency as the days advance. That's how the evil progresses. And my friends, if we have ever been in a place where we need to hear the instruction of these letters, and particularly this letter to Ephesus today is the day. Think about what's going on in Ukraine. Evidence again of just the pursuit of the human will, the desire to have and to possess. I was thankful this past week in hearing from Dave Patty that in one week, just this past week, seven semi-loads of goods and materials, food and so forth, were delivered into the Ukraine through the ministry of JV and those who are sending goods, this body among them, sending uh, support for that work. Praise God. That's the church being the church. That's the kind of love that Jesus is going to be talking about here. The residents of Buffalo need this this morning. Pray for the churches in that city with this latest manifestation of the desperate and disturbing fallenness of the world. Jesus is speaking to the churches about increasingly surviving in increasingly evil days. So let's look now at the text. Let's move into the outline sections that, that, that's there. Looking at verses 2 and through 7 under three headings. And those three headings are, first of all, the assessment, Jesus' assessment of the church that he's speaking to at the moment. Here in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, that's found in verses 2 through 4 and verse 6. That's his assessment. His assignment, what they should do about it, is in verse 5. And then the assurance, which always comes... 
And always in the last verse appears in verse 7. So there's our outline this morning, the, ass the assessment, the assignment, and the assurance. Let's work through this text together. Jesus says in the assessment, I know your works, your toil. This word works generally refers to business or employment. So Jesus is saying, I know what's occupied you. I know what's kept you busy. And he says, I know your toil and your labor. I know your toil, your labor. This word can mean trouble or weariness in addition to just hard work. It can even mean a beating of the breast with grief or with sorrow. It's a heavy word. Strong says that this identification comes together to say the intense labor united with trouble and toil. That's what Jesus is saying. I know your intense labor that's been united with trouble and toil in this life. I know. I know. So what was all the labor and the toil that had occupied these Ephesians? He makes that explicit. They'd been defending sound doctrine. Guarding the good deposit entrusted to them, we might say, if we draw on Paul's letter to Timothy while he was serving there in Ephesus. That's just what needed to happen there. They needed to guard the good deposit that had been entrusted to them. They needed to defend sound doctrine in their city. Remember, as we studied the city of Ephesus in Acts 19, as we were moving through that study together, spiritual warfare and pushback happened in Ephesus like no other place that Paul went to on his missionary journeys recorded in the book of Acts. That was the high watermark. This was a spiritually charged, troubled city. They'd been warring against false teachers, and they'd prevailed. Think about that. Amazing. They had won the battle in their city in defense of the truth. And they had prevailed while exhibiting patient endurance. Do you see that there in verse 2? That's amazing. If we get a picture, if we remember what life was like in Ephesus and then hear Jesus saying to them, you have defended the truth. I know your hard work. To commend them at the same time for patient endurance, that's amazing. That same patient endurance that Paul had commended to Timothy. 2 Timothy 2.24, we'll refer to it several times this morning. He calls for them to be patiently enduring of evil. Not meaning letting it go, meaning addressing it, but not growing weary in well-doing. And Jesus is saying these Ephesians have done just that. Verse 2, they had tested those who called themselves apostles and are not. And they had found them to be false. This is an immense victory. This is an unbelievable accomplishment. It's hard work. Any of us who seek to defend the truth that's under attack know what kind of hard work this is. And Jesus is saying, I know that that's what you've been doing. And in fact, I know you've been patiently enduring in the midst of that battle. From First and Second Timothy, we know some of the names, almost certainly. Hymenaeus and Alexander from First Timothy 1, 20. Phagellus and Hermogenes from Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. These and others may have been among those that Paul referred to back in Acts chapter 20 when he called the Ephesian elders to himself at Miletus before heading back to Antioch and to Jerusalem. And when he had warned them there that after his departure, fierce wolves would come in among them, not sparing the flock. And here it's happening. It's also possible the Nicolaitans here in verse 6 were part of this group. We don't know anything about this group, even from church history. There's some speculation, but nothing convincing. 
They're just mentioned here in verse 6, and they're mentioned in letter number 3, down in verse 15. But that's all we know about this group. It's possible, though, that they were part of the fierce wolves that Paul had said would come in among them after he left. The Ephesians had been doing some hard work. With regard to these Nicolaitans, it's enough to point out that Jesus hated their works. That's what it says there in verse 6. And so did the Ephesians. So they'd responded rightly. They were thinking and seeing and evaluating with the heart and mind and eyes of Jesus as they looked at this group. They spotted the error and they unmasked it. These guys were tough as nails theologically and doctrinally. In his early 2nd century letter to Ephesus, Ignatius wrote that no false teaching could even gain a hearing among them. That's the testimony of church history. They were discerning and determined. They saw through the facades of the false teachers and they exposed them to be false. And they did not grow weary, verse 3 here. They didn't grow weary in doing good. Enduring patiently. Do you see it again in verse 3? Seven verses in this letter and twice their patient endurance in the midst of this kind of struggle and hardship is mentioned. Enduring patiently in these demanding works. So they were twice commended for this essential virtue in fighting false teaching, a virtue that if we look back to chapter 1, verse 9, John has already said comes from Jesus himself, patient endurance. Folks, we, we, we have to let that one sink in and recognize that whatever it takes in our day to defend the truth against all the attacks that come against it, at very least, patient endurance should be part of the picture. And again, not just being patient with evil. The implication here is that the Ephesians were fighting hard against the evil and the false teaching itself, just enduring patiently in the exhaustion of that work. And they did it. They did it. Jesus himself says so. And it's Jesus himself who enables that patient endurance. Write down that cross-reference to chapter 1, verse 9, if it's not already there in your Bible. These guys were get-it-done Christians. They were capable. They were competent. But... Verse 4, but, said Jesus, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Their commitment to truth had cost them too much. They had abandoned the love they had at first. Some say Jesus is referring to their love for him here. Their love for God. Some say it's their love for people. Picking up on the two greatest commandments. It's their love in one direction or another, right? Some say it's their love for people. Catch this that their hatred for error had bled over into hatred of the people who believed error. That's chilling to hear, isn't it? That their hatred for error had bled over into a hatred of the people who believed the error. That can happen. And once you get started hating people, it's very hard to stop. 
This is a good warning to us. If people hold unbiblical views on various matters in our day, as they surely do, we should be prepared to give them biblically reasoned responses. But as we have pointed out so many times, and it gets pointed out virtually every time these subjects arise on the pages of Scripture, as we give them biblically reasoned responses, we should do it with gentleness and respect, the way Peter talked about in 1 Peter 3. We must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Paul wrote to Timothy there in Ephesus in the very same verse of 2 Timothy where he commended patient endurance. Did you catch that? We must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. 2 Timothy 2.24, the same verse where patient endurance is commended that comes up twice now in this letter. If our opposition comes across as personal hatred, we have not represented biblical truth in a responsible way. It's that simple. If our opposition comes across as personal hatred, take a moment and bring into mind anyone whom you think is on an erring path, whether an unbeliever who just has a hatred for biblical truth and is constantly challenging it, or a believer who's caught in a pattern of sin that you're losing patience with. If our opposition comes across as personal hatred, we've not represented biblical truth in a responsible way. We've not pleased God or done His work. Some years ago, our elders had to address a church member who had fallen under the influence of false teaching. We had to expose the error. We had to confront it in detail. We had to be firm. But we also had to guard and to express all along the way our love for that wayward member. Most simply put, in the words of James from James 1.20, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Our anger doesn't get the job done. Our loss of patience doesn't accomplish the work of God. It doesn't defend the truth in a responsible way, in a way that the truth itself can be recognized for what it is. But I think it's more than this here. I think it's more than just an either-or. Their love for God or their love for people had waned. In fact, I think it's the whole package of love that's missing here in Ephesus. I think Jesus is saying their Christian experience has become pure duty to them. Hard work. A self-generated defense of the intellectual truths of the faith that is all but devoid of gospel love. I think that's what Jesus is saying to, him, saying to them here. Your Christian experience has become pure duty and it's devoid of gospel love at this point. You see, Scripture links these two together, truth and love, and they cannot be separated. They cannot be separated. Again, Paul's instruction to Timothy in Ephesus, 2 Timothy 1, verse 13, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. That's how you follow the pattern of sound words that you hear from Scripture. You follow them in faith and in love. John wrote to his flock, likely also in Ephesus in 1 John 3, this is the commandment that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, there's the truth, and love one another. Just as he commanded us. There's the love. Both of them commanded. Both of them expressions of obedience. 
This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of the Son of God, of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Or again, 2 John chapter 5, Now I ask that we love one another, and this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. You walk in truth when you're being loving, and you love when you walk in truth. Truth and love must remain together or we're not preaching the biblical gospel. We're not guarding the good deposit entrusted to us. When we do, we will be loving God and loving people by introducing our two loves to one another. The greatest commandment and the great commission go hand in hand. We love God most by proclaiming His truth, walking in obedience to it and in sharing it with others. And we love others most by introducing them to the love of God. We love because He first loved us. The greatest commandment and the great commission must go hand in hand. If this isn't happening, the light of the gospel isn't shining from our lampstand. Do you hear me? That's what Jesus is telling Ephesus here and telling us through them. If this isn't happening, if truth and love are not going hand in hand in this body, the light of the gospel is not shining from our lampstand and we're doing more harm than good. We're doing more harm than good. Defending the truth without displaying the love that brought it about and flows from it just isn't worth it. It's, it's, a, it's as though it's not true without the love. So it's not just bare propositional truth. It's truth that either begets love or it's been misunderstood. Take care of the problem, Jesus is saying in verse 5. Take care of the problem, or I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Remember what the Ephesians had done, their labor, their hard work defending the truth. But if they've left behind their love of the truth, they need to cease to exist as a church. lest this world get the idea that it's just all about truth, but not truth that transforms the heart. I know your work, but you've left your first love. If you don't correct that, I'm going to remove your lampstand. It seems important to note there isn't an evangelical church in Ephesus today. So how do we take care of it? How do we take care of it? I should say that we know of. Wouldn't it be great to hear that there is still a seed of the gospel in the city of Ephesus today? That we know of, there's not. How do we take care of this? How do we hear and respond to Jesus' words? And friends, here, if you haven't heard anything I've said today so far, you've got to hear this, all right? How do we take care of it? Jesus gave us a three-step process right here in verse 5. He gave us a three-step process here in verse 5 that we need to write down. And we need to plaster it up in every single location where we're ever tempted to compromise truth or love. Are you getting the impression that verse 5 is important? If not, let me just say to you straightforwardly, verse 5 is important. Can you say it with me? Verse 5 is important. All right, good. Thank you. I don't want to be condescending. I just don't want you to miss the point. The three-step process that's here in verse 5, we need to write it down and plaster it up everywhere where we're tempted to compromise. Just on a sticky note, it, put it somewhere. 
This is like a how-to commentary on 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How do we confess in order to enjoy that cleansing and restoration? We follow these three steps right here in Revelation chapter 2, verse 5. We remember, we repent, and we return to the works that we did at first. That's the word of Jesus to the church. We remember how it was back at the start, or whenever we were most impassioned in our devotion to the truth. We remember how it was. You pause and you recall, I didn't always live like this. I didn't always have a short fuse like this. I didn't always have to work so hard to overcome the waves of hatred that awaken in my heart for the expressions of rebellion and disobedience that we see in our day. I don't think I always had to work this hard. I remember a time when the love of God was so great that I had mercy on sinful people. Not condemnation for them and desire for God's judgment to fall on their heads. You take a moment and you remember. You remember. Second, you repent of your cold-hearted commitment to the truths that you cannot deny, but that you no longer love. You repent. You turn away. That's what it means. Turn away from mere intellectual assent to the tenets of the faith and recall to mind that this has always been about a personal and loving relationship with the true and living God. And then loving this world with his undying love. So you remember and then you repent. And here it is, the completion of repentance. You return and do the good works you did at first. You just pick up where you left off. You don't try to make up for lost time. You don't try to rewrite history so it seems like you never fell. You return and begin doing the things you did at first, remembering that returning is just part B of repentance. It really is what repentance means. Repentance is turning away from something and beginning to walk a new direction. You're, you're walking back in the direction that God's called us to go. Friends, being among the body, corporate worship and fellowship, it's one of the best ways to remember and repent and return. It refreshes the spirit to be with God's people. That's how the church is supposed to work. We strengthen one another in our obedience. And that obedience is strengthened by the fellowship that we enjoy together. The love of the body for one another in the truth of the gospel that's preached. So that's a great way to return. Return to the body of Christ. And see how God refreshes your spirit. So there is the assessment and the assignment. Now let's get to the assurance. Listen to the call of the spirit in this warning in verse 7. And don't harden your hearts to it. Listen. This is not just a word for Ephesus. It's also a word for us. So hear it. Heed it. And if you do hear it and heed it. This message that Jesus has given to this church, what Jesus is saying here is your life will go on forever. Your life will go on forever. You'll be cleansed and refreshed in the way that we just talked about from repenting and returning to the love we have at first. But, but then you'll endure forever in that relationship with God. You will eat from the tree of life. That's the image Remember, Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden so that in their sin they might not eat from the tree and live forever in sin. But once we've been freed from our sin through the work of Christ, eating of the tree of life is the image of the blessing of God. Eternal life with Him. So eating from the tree which is in the paradise of God. 
It's in the eternal future Eden. That's Jesus' assurance. His assurance is that our lamp won't be snuffed out. We'll actually enjoy the eternal life that's ours. And notice it's individual now, too. Do you see that in the text? This assurance. I've been talking to the church at Ephesus all along. Now, to the one who conquers. Singular. It's talking to each one of our hearts now. The church needs to respond as a whole, but each individual within it needs to respond personally. To the one who conquers, we'll make it to heaven. We'll enjoy intimacy with God, his choicest fruits. And all that the end of this book promises is contained in this single tailor-made promise to Ephesus and to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in every age until he returns. All of the good promises of this book are ours by responding rightly in repentance and returning to this one whom our soul loves. So what's our bottom line today? Our bottom line is, as you hold on to truth, don't let go of love. That's the simple statement. As you hold on to truth, don't let go of love. Now, let me make three quick comments in relation to that statement. If you already have let go of love, then remember, retent, repent and return to the place where you belong. That's a good word of reminder. Receive the grace of God that shows itself as the gift of repentance. That's also right there in 2 Timothy 2, once again in the very same passage where patient endurance is commended. Receive the grace of God that shows itself as the gift of repentance. And enter into the joy of that repentance and to the fruit that it bears. Second word, if you can't remember ever being awash in God's love. So my first word was to those who were but now aren't. The second word is to those who can't ever remember being awash in God's love such that you were freed from the sorts of things Jesus is not pleased with here in Ephesus. If you can't remember ever being awash in God's love, listen closely. It's possible that you never have been. It's entirely possible that you never have been, that you've never experienced the saving grace and cleansing power that God expresses to us in Christ. So to you, I say, friend, come to him now. Come to him now. In repentance, in faith, receive Jesus as your sin bearer. Recognize that it's only as your sin is transferred to him such that it's covered by his death and his righteousness is imputed to you such that when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Christ as covering you. If that transaction hasn't happened by trusting Christ, you can do it right now, here, today. And I urge you to do so. And finally, for all of you who are mature and walking with the Lord and are experiencing the love of truth and the love and truth that Jesus commends in Ephesus here, just a couple of quick words of warning. First, it's far easier than you'd ever imagine to leave behind the love that you had at first. We know that. But we need to be faithfully reminded of it today. It's far easier than you'd ever imagine to leave behind the love you had at first. It's so much easier in this fallen world to reduce saving faith, for instance, to legalistic rituals and requirements. It's so much easier to manage a clear list of do's and don'ts than to navigate toward intimacy with an unseen companion. And that's scary. It's scary to realize how easy it is to fall from this. But what's scarier even yet 
is that when we do leave behind the first love that, that we had or the love that we had at first, we're usually able to convince ourselves that we've actually done the right thing or the only thing we really could do. The better thing, the only thing maybe. No one could be, expect me to be loving in that situation. That store clerk, just a store clerk, but so snotty. How am I supposed to be loving in response to that? I don't think anybody would expect me to be. If I go soft on this guy, he'll never understand how things are. He's got to learn to play by the rules. Using these two quick examples doesn't mean that love can't ever be firm and tough. It has to be firm and tough. Not only at many times, but all the time in some way or another. But I don't know that we struggle too much with that idea. The things we really struggle with is how to be loving in the face of outright hatred or disrespect. Or, if I may add one from the other direction, how to continue to be loving even in the face of our own weariness with this world. My friends, this is a walk of faith. We don't conjure up the ability to be loving. We entrust ourselves to God who transforms our hearts and can make us loving to our own surprise. To our own surprise. But that is the grace of God in Christ. So that's the first warning to this third group of mature believers. The second is just to remember to hold on to this truth that Truth that lacks love is not saving truth. That's chilling. Truth that lacks love is not saving truth. It was also John who, write, who wrote in 1 John 4, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Remember, repent, return. This is Jesus' charge. And my friends, when we do that, He will surely answer us when we call. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. And as I pray, musicians and communion servers, please join at the front. And let's remember the Lord's death in communion today. Heavenly Father, thank you for this truth that Jesus wrote or spoke to the angel at the church at Ephesus. Help us, Lord God, by your grace to hear it now in 21st century Warrenville on the other side of the planet in vastly different circumstances but still desperately, desperately in need of your spirit at work among us, enabling not just a passionate, undying, unswerving, unyielding, undiluted affirmation of the truth of God's word and to hold that truth and proclaim it, present it, defend it with an absolutely unswerving and undying love, born of faith in the true and living God, a love that no human being could conjure up, but that is available to all who truly have sins forgiven, hell averted, and heaven promised through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That work which we celebrate now all of us who have trusted Christ. And it's in his name that we pray.